0: Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 1 introduces us to the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. It gives us this understanding of what God's Word does for us and what it does in us, does to us. The Bible is not just like any other book that can be studied, that could be critiqued, that could be read for entertainment. Although the Bible should be studied and although the Bible is, can be highly entertaining to us, it is a book that has authority to do what God intends for it to do. It is effective in our lives because the Bible is God's word. It's God's word to us. And the Holy Spirit is bound to God's word in such a way that the Holy Spirit never comes to us apart from God's word. Here's what I mean by that. Whenever you hear or you read the scriptures, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is coming to you and doing the works that God intends. That he is granting you faith, that he is present and at work in your life, and that he is giving to you all the benefits that Jesus has won for us in his cross and empty tomb. That's what this book does. The Psalter is no different. I'm a strong advocate that God's people make better use of the Psalms in our lives, whether it's in public worship or whether it's in private devotion. Based on God's promises, I know that whenever you read, whenever you pray, whenever you sing and reflect upon the very words that God gives us to use, it will accomplish things in your life. It will. It's not a question. It is a certainty. And I'm not talking about our worldly understanding here of this kind of transactional spirituality where you kind of put a coin into the God machine and he spits out a blessing for you. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about us learning to read, to sing, to pray, to meditate upon the songs and prayers of Jesus himself and trust that God will deliver on those promises. That's what I'm getting after. He will grant us faith. He will grant us the fruit of the lips that is the confession of our faith. And he will give us those good works that follow faith. And he will prosper those good works even amidst a world, even amidst a world that hates God and his word. He will do these things, church, as we simply take up the words that he gives us to use in our lives. So we'll walk through Psalm 1 verse by verse, and we're going to chew on it. We're going to meditate upon it, as the psalm calls us to do. But let me make an important disclaimer. This psalm is often used primarily as a roadmap or as a guidebook. Do this and not that. Listen to the angel on your shoulder and not the devil. Be nice, not naughty. We can't reduce Psalm 1 to just those simplistic terms. The passage does tell us; it instructs us about behaviors that we ought to avoid. But I want you to think beyond that. Rather than walking away from this today with a list, a list of action items, I want you to understand something far more profound. This is not just a matter of doing, but rather this is a matter of being. This is not just about do these things and not this. This is a matter of who you are in Christ. Because you sit at the feet of Jesus in the divine service, because you listen to the voice of your shepherd, because you take up his word at home, and because you teach and instruct your children in this faith, this is what God promises for you. This is your identity as you've been baptized into Christ, and I'm going to demonstrate that further as we go along, but what I want to spotlight for you today is this fact that God is doing these things in your life as you abide in his word. He is. It's a promise. So verse 1 begins this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the way in the seat of scoffers. Who is it that is blessed? Who is this talking about? Well, we begin this way. Because you are connected to Christ and you have faith in his word of promise, the blessed man, the blessed person, man or woman, is you. This is who you are. Now, when scripture uses this term blessed, it's pretty loaded in our cultural context, right? It Whenever Scripture uses this word, it does not resemble the, uh, the pithy platitudes of social media. It doesn't resemble the more dangerous sense in which it's used by the prosperity preachers. It's not referring to a hashtag, and it's not referring to material wealth, health, and a padded bank account. That's not what it means necessarily to be blessed. Blessed, blessed means being in Christ in Christ, in all of the benefits that are found in him. And what are those benefits? That's a sermon in and of itself, right? Long list, but I'm talking about righteousness, life, forgiveness, mercy, grace, and peace. Everything that Jesus Christ won for you in his cross and empty tomb, that's what belongs to you because you are connected to him. That's what it means to be blessed. Those things are far more beneficial to us than anything this world can offer. Jesus uses the term blessed in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And on and on he goes. But Jesus always connects this term blessed with the kingdom of heaven, with belonging in his kingdom. That's what it means to be blessed. And as you are connected to him, church, the text says that you do not take advice from the wicked, that's those who contemplate evil, nor do you stand uh, uh, nor do you do the things that sinners do those who carry out evil that's what sinners means in this context nor do you keep company with scoffers and the scoffers are those who openly mock god and his word and it's not that you and i never fall into these things because of our sinful flesh the difference between you and the world is that though you and i are sinners That is not the end. Now we have a new nature in Christ as we've been made new creations in him. New creations with new desires, with new habits, with new rhythms, not just the old sinful Adam. Now you and I have this new capacity to actually resist evil, to resist unbelief. And the world does not. You have a renewed will that now fights against your sinful flesh, even whenever it feels like you're losing at times. You have a new nature. Verse 2 But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Again, some of you are sitting there going, Ah, check, I need to meditate on God's word tonight. And that's good. I, I want you to have that impulse. But I want to tell you as well that this is who you are. This is who you are. Because you have a renewed will, you are no longer just a sinner, but a forgiven one. You are justified by faith in Christ. And now your will is no longer bound to sin and death, but it is freed up to delight in God's word. You meditate on it in the daily rhythms of your life. That's why you're here, by the way. You're here to hear a word from God that you can't hear everywhere else in your life, that God is here in the divine service speaking to you through his word. And as you go about your daily rhythms throughout the week, in your vocations, in your homes, as you fall asleep, as your head hits the pillow, these words are on your lips and in your hearts. Now, why do I say God's word here and not law? Because it says, he meditates on God's law. What is that about? Well, let me do just a bit of translating for you. The Hebrew word for law here is Torah. Torah. So when the psalm uses this word law, we're not talking about law in terms of the distinction between law and gospel. All right, we talk about that a lot as a Lutheran church. We're not talking about that distinction. What it's talking about is Torah which are the old testament books of the bible the old testament which contains both law and gospel all right the law of god do this and not that and then the promises this is what god will do for you all of god's word contains both law and gospel so whenever the psalm tells us that blessed is the man who meditates upon god's torah it's talking about his word god's word if you want if you have questions about that or anything i'd be happy to clear them up for you later But here's the point. The point is that your delight is in God's word because it's central to who you are in Christ, the eternal word of God. Christ is the eternal word of God. We are connected to him through the written word of God, and that is central to our identity. And notice, it says delight. Whenever you delight in something, it is not something that you will yourself to, It's completely natural to who you are. You don't have to discipline yourself to delight in something. It is a gift given to you by God. And that gift is given to you as you go to his word. The more that you are in his word, the more you become, the more that you are changed and you delight in his word. It is a gift given to you by God. The same God who has called you to himself through the word of the gospel. And you are planted in this word, and to be planted in this word means that you are planted in the eternal word of God, the incarnate word, which is who? Jesus. Jesus, the eternal word, the incarnate word. Verse 3 says that as you are planted in this word, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Your delight is in God's word because because it is your life source. The living streams of water that always satisfy. God's word is the means of grace. The means of grace. The vehicle that delivers to you refreshment in Christ and all the benefits of his cross and resurrection. That's why the sacraments do what they do, because this is none other than visible word. God's word of promise coming to you, accomplishing that which it says it does. That's why we open this book. That's why we read this book. That's why I preach from this book, because it accomplishes those things in your life that God intends for it to accomplish. And as your roots continue to dig in deep to your life source, is the Lord Jesus. He gives you all that you need to grow into a mature tree that brings about the fruit of good works, that brings about the the leaves of faith that do not wither even when adverse conditions come your way. And they will. Does anybody face those adverse conditions in your life? Absolutely. But the promise here is that those leaves will not fade as you are connected to those streams of living water, they will not fade. And that as a matter of fact, you will prosper. You will prosper. And again, a loaded term that we have to talk about. This prosperity that we're talking about, the prosperity that we're promised, it's often hidden to us in this world of sin and death. It's often hidden from our sight. This is not the material prosperity that's uh, peddled to you by the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on TV. Here's, listen to what Martin Luther says about this prosperity. Here's what he says. He says, what is more wonderful than that believers increase when they are destroyed? That they multiply when they are diminished. That they overcome when they are subdued. That they enter in whenever they are cast out. That they are victorious when they are defeated. You get the point? This is what it means to be prosperous in the biblical sense that as the world, the sinful flesh, and the devil afflict us at every turn, we will never be destroyed. That's the promise for the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. This is true prosperity, such that the world cannot give. But those who are not planted in Christ through his word have no such promise. Here's the difficult part of the passage. Those who have rejected Christ are not giant oaks, they are not budding trees, but they're something altogether different. Verse 4 says it this way: The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. In the Bible, chaff is always used as a as a foil, as a as an opposite of wheat. It looks very similar to wheat. You, almost, you can't tell them apart, but, it, but it's not wheat. It's an imposter. It does not provide any nutritional value. It's only good as kindling. It's only good to be burned by those who collect the harvest. And in this case, the scripture is saying that this chaff is blown away by the wind. It isn't firmly planted in anything substantial. So that when adverse conditions come, it's just blown away, tossed to and fro. No real foundation when those attacks come, whenever death is knocking at the door, like it comes for all of us, this type of person has nothing firm to stand on, nothing to combat these attacks with. And as a result, they're blown away. And here's what follows in verse five. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So there is a judgment that is coming at the return of Christ with all of his saints. At the resurrection... At the resurrection, the righteous will enter into eternal life and the wicked into eternal death. But that final judgment church has been inaugurated here and now. It begins here and now. See, the world is at odds with God. Not popular, not a popular message I'm about to tell you. The world is at odds with God and it actually rests under his wrath. But through the death of Jesus... God has been reconciled to the world and he has provided such that we who have faith in the blood of Jesus, we escape the wrath that is due for us, the wrath that we deserve because it does not fall upon us. It actually falls upon Jesus and his cross. But for those who reject God's earnest plea for reconciliation, they are already under judgment. They scoff at God's word. They hate his means of grace the word and the sacraments. They will not be found in the congregation of the righteous here in time and there in eternity because they prefer sewer water rather than the living streams that God promises. This is hard for us to consider, especially when it comes to those people in our lives who we know and love, but who for whatever reason have rejected God and his promises. But what God gives us to do, the vocation that he has called us to in this case Is to pray for them? Is to show them love and mercy? Is to trust that the Holy Spirit will be effective in their lives as he comes to them through the word? That he would bring them out of that desert of unbelief and that they would be firmly planted near the streams of living water where faith is nourished and fruitful. That's our prayer. And then there's a promise here for you at the end. Verse 6, there's a promise and a threat. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse 5 called us the Congregation of the Righteous. It's kind of feels a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? You look at yourself, you look at your neighbor. Don't do it right now. But uh, you go, Congregation of the Righteous? What are we talking about here? This, this church, this congregation, yeah, yeah. You are righteous, not because of your good works and your merits, but because you are connected to Christ through faith. You've been planted in this soil near the streams of living water by holy baptism, and he continues to feed you and to nourish you through his word and through his sacrament. And he comes to us, church, at this altar where he makes his true body and blood fruitful in your life. The Lord knows your way. He knows you. There's a biblical way of knowing. I wish I had time, but this isn't just head knowledge about knowing you. This is like Adam knew Eve, his wife. You know what I'm talking about? Adam knew Eve. Do do I need to pull out the chart or anything like that? Adam knew Eve. There's an intimacy. God knows you. He knows everything about you. And he loves you. He loves you dearly because you are not worthy in and of yourself, but because you are connected to Christ, the righteous man that this psalm talks about. So, this psalm is about you, but it's only about you insofar as you are connected to who? Christ. He is the righteous man. In His earthly life, Jesus kept His way pure and free from sin so that His perfect record would be imputed to you. And then on the cross, He would take your record, your flawed, disgusting, disturbing record, and it would be imputed to Him. He exchanged it. That through his death on the cross, you would be declared righteous on his account. And now in his resurrection and ascension, he lives and he reigns so that we who are in him will bear much fruit. As we are the vine and he has the branches and we abide in him. And because we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. I said that you don't need a ton of action items at the end of this thing. And I promise you that's not what I'm going to do here. But... You need to know, you need to remember, you need to trust that you belong to God and that you've been brought to faith through this word and that's what makes you righteous. That's what sets you apart from the wicked. This is who you are. But I have room for one little tip. Ready? One little tip. How about, how about we trust God's word even more? How about we be unapologetically Christian? How about we trust God's word to do what it says without qualification? I dare you. And maybe that trust looks very practical in your life. Something like learning to read, pray, sing, and meditate upon the Psalms. Here's a little suggestion. Take Psalm 1 this week. Just Psalm 1. Read it every morning. Pray it. Sing it if you're able. Think about it throughout the day. Reflect upon it. And maybe that will translate into a lifestyle of using God's word more in your life. Not because you have to, but because this is who you are. This is who you are. And again, this is not an opinion. This is a fact. Through his word and his Holy Spirit, he will do amazing, incredible things that only faith in his gospel can produce. It's not a question. It's a guarantee. So why don't we take him up on that? He will accomplish these things. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.